Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars, part of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Uh, and brought to you, as always, with thanks to our friends at Cooper Tyres, at the Justice Brothers and at TorontoMotorsports.com. Now, if you are tracking our call for questions this week, you'll realise that Marshall Pruitt's not with us. He's currently lying in a darkened room recovering from the St. Pete IndyCar race, where he's been a busy, busy boy. But you'll be as delighted, I'm sure, as I am, that we've got another of our special guest presenters. And I'm utterly delighted to reveal that it's no less than double IMSA champion, Ricky Taylor. Ricky, welcome to the Weekend Sportscast. Thanks, Graham. Yeah, it's really excited to be on. I think uh, I was just watching on TV for, for St. Pete, and I, I needed a bit of recovery to kind of digest all that as well. <laughs> well, good stuff. Before we get into the questions, and there's plenty of them, uh, many of them are directed towards you. It's, this is the part of the show where we'll uh, regularly look at what the news in the week is about. And pretty clearly, the news agenda is dominated at the moment by non-motorsport happenings. But that is beginning to have a bit of an impact on the sports. And in particular, uh, the delay we're expecting the day we're recording this on Monday evening here in the UK. Um, and uh, the delay to the confirmation of the Le Mans 24 hours entry list for 2022. It is pretty clear why there are matters arising around at least one entry for the Le Mans 24 hours and possibly more that feature at the moment uh, organisations or individuals or multiples of the, of the two that may or may not be involved in the sanctions around the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're going to say nothing about that uh, at the moment other than we await the decisions of the ACO with interest and our thoughts and our prayers are with everybody in the Ukraine at the moment at what is a terrible, terrible time for them and frankly, for the rest of Europe and the planet beyond. Good luck to everybody involved and may your God go forward with you on that one. Beyond that, um, that's the serious bit. Let's get into a couple of questions. And Ricky, we did ask for some questions to be directed towards you, and you probably expected what was going to come next with this. We're going to kick it off with a couple of those questions before we get into our regular uh, flow of subject matter. I'm going to start with Josh Barrett um, through Twitter. And Josh asks, we often hear European drivers say how much they enjoy racing in the US. They always do. You, though, have been one of the, the guys that in recent years has done more than many of your countrymen to come and race in Europe. And Josh is keen to, to hear what your experience has, has been there as, as a standalone experience and also how it compares to racing in North America. Yeah, I, um, I think, you know, we're very fortunate in, in IMSA to go to some of the best tracks in the world and we, we have them right here in our backyards. Um, and I think a lot of driver, European drivers do say they, they love coming to race, um, this style of racing, you know, with lots of restarts and you're always a, around other cars, um, seems to be the, the common sentiment. Um, but for me, I, I think for American drivers, unlike in other things, Americans, we, we feel like we're the center of the universe, but with, with motorsports, Europe is the center of the universe. And, um, and so getting getting opportunities to go and race in Europe, where really um, it attracts people from around the world uh, to go race in, in WEC or, or whatever it might be. Um, for me, I really enjoy it just to get to to see a different a different crop of drivers, a different group of teams, um, the way that they do things with with tire warmers or different strategies of, you know, in, in LMP2, the, the little experience that I've had 
you know, with without any tires for the weekend, and and making it making it work properly. Um, but the tracks are are amazing as well. Getting to go to Spa or Le Mans. Um, didn't quite get to race in Barcelona this year, but but got to drive the track and. Um, it's it's really cool to, to experience those places that that I've been a fan of on TV, uh, just growing up, you know. It, it does strike you, by the way. I'm just looking at your Le Mans record. Uh, you've raced at Le Mans now seven times, I think that's right. You're one start away when you get that opportunity from matching uh, a, f- a fairly unique, that's a terrible phrase, but a very unusual record established by harry tinknell last year which is that harry has now raced at le mans in all four modern classes he's not raced in a hypercar yet gtp in insert parlance but he did race in lmp1 in the uh, the ill-fated nissan you're just a top class appearance away from a full sweep of those classes uh, that's, a, that's a great point i never thought of that um that's pretty cool and i think um if if Hopefully everything that's going ahead is is going to happen. Hopefully, hopefully we get to do that. Um, but yeah, I think I think LMP1 or the, the top class at the Mall is always the the difficult one to find. But I think we're really lucky that in the situation that we're in, that there's going to be so many so many seats now, and it's not just you know nine to twelve seats in yeah. the top class. It's going to be it's going to be a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's it's going to be a massive change, you know. When, wherever we talk about whether or not it's Daytona, whether or not it's Le Mans, WC, the IMSA Weather Tech Sports Car Championship, it's a hell of a time to be a professional race driver, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think everybody's really excited. Um, it's it's hard to hide it, really. I think um, this year's a bit of a funny one where everybody's just in a bit of a holding pattern and sort of waiting to get their new cars and start testing and developing. And um, but everybody's really looking at next year and it's it's you know in sports car racing it really ebbs and flows so much you know there's the times where it's fully supported by gentlemen drivers then the manufacturers come in and and bolster the car counts and the budgets and and then it always seems to go back the other way again and you you kind of you just want to catch the cycle in the right time and you know the last time it happened was you know toyota porsche audi Sort of, I guess a lot of people would say it was the last, you know, really, really great time before that, the GTP era and, and everything. Um, and so I'm really excited that at this point in, in my career and along with, you know, the other drivers that we're hitting this, this, uh, this wave in the right time to to be at the peaks of our careers and it's such a cool era. And that's that's a great point because you are going to come into this as an established star, a ch- multiple championship winning driver at a point when brand new uh cars with in some cases established teams in other cases teams looking to establish themselves and you're there and i don't want to use a phrase like elder statesman but an established star that must be a quite a comfortable place to be right now yeah i I think um it's it's never comfortable in motorsports but as you say i think having some experience and and being being relevant at the time is is super important um and being i think as a sports car driver growing up my goal was always to develop a good relationship with a manufacturer um because and and luckily i found myself with with somebody like honda or honda and acura who since since the formation of acura i think they've spent every year of existence in motorsports so um being being tied with somebody like that um 
and somebody who's as committed to the LMDH project as they are, it's it's super cool to to see the development of it and to be on the ground level and not and not just on the outside hoping that I'm gonna get to be a part of it, actually getting to be a, a you know involved in meetings and going to going to uh, going to the facility in, in California and seeing seeing how everything gets developed. Um, it's it's super exciting. And then obviously having the introduction of Dr. Salters at HPD uh, taking over, uh, what is it, two years ago now. Um, he's built an unbelievable team at HPD. So I think a lot of people will see Accura as a bit of an underdog. And it's it, I think everybody's looked at a bit as a bit of an underdog compared to Porsche. Um, but seeing what, what's going on behind the scenes is truly, truly cool. Excellent stuff. We're going to finish uh, this little strand with uh, a bit of an expansion on that. comes from one of our regular questioners, Ryan Terpstra, who says, what do you look forward to most in 2023, Ricky? You can only pick one thing. doesn't have to be racing, but uh, what is it about 2023 that is lighting the fire for Ricky Taylor right now? I think it kind of goes back to your first question of, you know, how you compare yourself up against the rest of the world. And we're used to racing in America, but um, being in a situation where it's truly, it's going to be the best of the best all racing against each other. And getting to do that, you know, reset of okay, let's see who's on their game now, and um, and it's going to be it, it's going to be big fish in a big pond, you know, it's going <laughs> to be really cool uh, to see uh, how everybody measures up against each other, and uh, I, I just can't wait to to be on the. If I had to narrow it down to one moment, it's always uh, the roar at Daytona. Uh, when you see the new cars for the first time. It's the first time everybody's got their cars at the racetrack together, ready to go uh, compete. And that's always the cool, the, just the, it gives me goosebumps thinking about, you know, seeing all the new cars. And the last time, you know, for the DPI, seeing, seeing yeah. you know, five different manufacturers, four or five different manufacturers out there. And, and now to get to, to do it all over again with LMDH. Um, hopefully it's got some international uh people coming over but it, yeah that that single moment of walking down the, the garage and seeing everybody is is exciting it's cool i mean there, there are two moments i think in life where race cars are at their coolest the first time you see a new one and when they're really really dirty there's something about yes. a dirty race car that this is un- unbelievably cool. Let's move on. Let's go move into some of our questions about IMSA. It's a quiet time at the moment for IMSA racing, at least for another couple of weeks until we get stuck into the Sebring 12-hour. Um, I'm going to answer one of these up one straight off the bat. Kevin Payne says, it's great to see Marshall traveling again. I completely concur. Asks whether or not we will both be at Sebring and if yes, will there be a live twist? Uh, sadly, Marshall won't be at Sebring. And that uh, for that, you can thank our, our friends at IndyCar for uh, putting on the, I think it's Texas, isn't it? Uh, got IndyCar race that weekend, which means that we're missing a fair number of people that otherwise would be at Sebring. So sadly, Marshall's um, number one project for racer is in IndyCar. So we won't be there. As for whether or not we do a live twist, Wait and see. A bit of hashtag wait and see. Uh, it went very well when we did it last time. Um, I'm going to see whether or not we can uh, encourage a guest presenter to come and wrangle people to a live mic. And we'll do that either live or as live uh, in one of the kind of practice days at Sebring. Hopefully with it a bit more quiet. The press tent, as it was last time, was just 
horrendously noisy, but we're not in that uh, facility this time. I think everybody went away from that with a headache. So, Kevin, we uh, no MP there, but either we'll get MP on the horn or we'll uh, we'll do something with a guest presenter from Sebring. I will be there for both the uh, WC Prologue, which is the weekend before, and of course the very exciting race week. And I cannot tell you how awesome it's going to be to be back to one of my favourite places on the planet. Uh, let's have a look what else we can see here. Uh, Eric Hargrader, and that might be one that you can kind of pile in with here, Ricky. He says, with the new NASCAR rule set, cars being a step up in direction of sports cars, what have you heard about sports car teams helping NASCAR teams? Do you think any of the sports car teams will dip a toe into NASCAR? It's lucrative and far smaller engineering league than before. Uh, and he says, all the best to... The family ramp. There's a few that we know about, aren't there? So we know Action Express helped our rights to test the next generation NASCAR, if I remember rightly. Hendrick's a bit involved, of course, there. And we've got uh, Rick Ware Racing as well involved now in the GTD programme. I mean, is there much crossover between those two families, Ricky? Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't actually thought about that, um, but it does make a lot of sense. I think, like you said, a lot of the Hendrick uh team members are, are over there on the 48 car um and then with the relationship with ecr and rcr uh with action express as well that's that's pretty interesting i didn't know that they're actually uh helping to test the nascar side yeah i think they did i think it was an off uh it was in the outturn of covid if i remember rightly there was a an early test of that new generation nascar and i'm pretty certain that happened at daytona with the Action Express crew handling that. Um, so, you know, that, that led to all sorts of rumours, because, of course, it does, because that's uh, welcome to the internet. But uh, <laughs> I think what, what I think what we're probably going to see, in terms of what's happening in Europe at the moment, there's an awful lot of movement around some of the bigger single-seater teams taking a look at sports car racing for this new era. We're going to see a couple of those involved this year. Prima. Uh, power team, uh, you know, a big team in the support formulae are going to be involved. Um, of course, in LMP2, and there's little doubt they're looking down the road to what might be possible. And there's others that have been sniffing around as well. We had a Carlin uh, efforts in LMP2 a couple of seasons back. But yeah, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? If IMSA and if the WEC can make the kind of splash that the the new incoming teams deserve to have made in the wider world and if the teams and the manufacturers are successful in that too i mean ricky you're going to be involved in a part of the sports that's going to have more profile than at any time since you've been involved surely yeah it, it is i think i think already the hype behind everything and seeing the the level and the caliber of the manufacturers that are going to be involved is definitely it's it's becoming a really big deal and um i i just hope that when it all does come out that it, it translates to the show as well as it, it looks like it will. And um, you're right. I think, I think on the world stage, it's going to be a, a really cool thing to be a part of. Um, yeah. Now here's a question that you, you might want to read this one. Uh, I'm going to go for Nathan Barnes question here. And it may be that you can't give me an answer on this, but it's a great question. Uh, it's a question directed at Marshall. And he says in past week in IndyCar episodes, there is a sister podcast of this that Marshall does every week um, about IndyCar. You've said that IndyCar teams spend a lot of time polishing and perfecting body fit and rolling resistance to get the ultimate speedway package. 
do teams in sports cars do the opposite for BOP gamesmanship? For instance, would a team during testing intentionally install their bodywork with the worst fit they can? Um, roughest pairing the gearboxes to set performance out for a favourable BOP, install the good <laughs> stuff for racing. Before I, I, I throw that your way, like the, uh, how can I put this, steaming turd of a question it is. It's a, it's a great question, but it's 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 one I'm sure that most people in professional race team would prefer not to answer. It is fair to say, Nathan, that there are a number of tactics that undoubtedly are thrown into the mix. Um, and that, that involves all sorts of things. It's equally fair to say that most of the sanctioning bodies are reasonably wise to most of those tricks. And it underlines the policy that I've explained that I've got about BOP um, for uh, I've explained on the weekend sports cars before, but I, that, that I, I employ for, for daily sports car, which is, I generally don't tend to write in anything other than factual terms about balance of performance uh, before a race. I will report that there's a change being made. I will generally not place a value judgment on it. And I am, I'm afraid, a card carrying really bored with people in paddocks telling me how screwed they are by BOP. I will write about it after the race because that's what matters. Um, that's my policy. Ricky, uh, I, I can see at the moment uh, that you're burning all the papers there from uh, from Winteller Racing about uh, the tactics you're going to employ. But <laughs> it, it's it's fair to say there's a, that there is a I'm not going to say a game being played, but balanced performance brings with it, doesn't it? Challenges, opportunities, all sorts of things, with no secrets given out. <laughs> How many games can be played? And I'm not asking you to name them, but it's pretty clear <laughs> that people do. I, I think that's a brilliant question, um, <laughs> and I think I think that's something that honestly is probably the hardest thing to enforce is um, is the car that you're presenting at at the wind tunnel or at the dyno or or at a at the roar test or wherever you're presenting it is that representative of of the car you're taking to the racetrack um, body fits and bearings and those things all cost money and. Yeah. The argument could be made that it wasn't in the budget to yeah. to use those ceramic bearings or to to fit all new bodywork or whatever it might be, and that would <laughs> would be skewing the skewing the read. Um, and I think that's why IMSA and, and the different sanctioning bodies have to rely on track data from races, yeah. Um, because for the most part, people are going to be giving their best in the races and i think i think they do an amazing job from sim data and and everything that they they've all the data that they've built up on building some sort of a model um i think it'll be more difficult when it's all new cars but i think that's a brilliant question and uh i'm glad i'm glad for those reasons um that that i don't have to involved in that process <laughs> i mean it's got to be said it seems at the moment i mean ims has been in a pretty happy place with the bop i mean there have been days when it's not been like that but the margins we're talking about here are pretty minimal aren't they we're not talking about you know decisions being made so that you guys are literally seconds off we're talking here tenths of seconds but we know you're a race driver a professional race driver and a top team and tenths of seconds to you would be something that to us means something entirely different. Yeah, and like you said, tenths of a second in terms of, you know, this extremely complex machine is is nothing to, to balance these things and to make it so close as it is. 
Um, and that, and it's it's not just lap time anymore. It's it's you know how are they over a stint? How is the raceability of the car? Top speed versus you know how quickly it gets up to top speed, and it, it's such a complex thing to make them all race well. Um, and we've seen I think IMSA does a really good job of of not chasing the BOP. Uh, I think there's two philosophies of whether you chase it to make it fair at every track, or if or if over the course of the schedule, it works out to be fair. Everybody has their their strengths, whether it's bumpy tracks or fast tracks or slow tracks or smooth tracks. Um, you know, it works out to be uh, each each manufacturer car gets their favored weekends. Um, and I think Gimsa does a good job of having a very equal, you know, season average, and they don't really have to touch it right now. Um, yeah. I think for certain races, you're going to argue one way or the other, but I think they do a really nice job. It's going to be interesting, isn't it, when we, instead of having two or three, uh, we're into the realms of seven or eight at that point. <laughs> at that point, I'm going to take noise-cancelling headphones down the paddock and not ask about PMP and see, wait, wait, see what happens. I'm going to turn to a couple of the questions directed at yourself, Ricky. Uh, Chris Ward wants to know, uh, what was it like running at Le Mans with Ben Keating? Yeah, um, that was fun. I think uh, from the very beginning, uh, obviously being at the track with, with these kinds of drivers, you get to know them in the paddock and you see their lap times and you see them on pole and LMP2 every weekend. And you kind of wonder, you know, he's fast and what's the story there? Like, how does he do it? He's got a full-time job and super successful businessman. And, um, and then it was super fun from the get-go. Like they had the suits that looked like, uh, Oh, they, the uh, tuxedos. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, these guys are fun. And obviously Bill Riley is, is just a gem. He's the one of the best guys in the pit lane to get to drive for. And unfortunately, I've only driven for him, you know, once or twice. Um, but that that combination of Ben with with Riley and uh, your own Luke Mullen, and it was just it was a really cool experience. Unfortunately, we weren't the most competitive, but I was super impressed with Ben. I think the amount of time that he puts into um, to his to his craft of, of driving race cars, on in addition to his, his his dealership business. Yeah. Um, he's really, he really does a great job. And I don't, I don't think a lot of, I think when you have a, a gentleman driver in for 99% of the time, the thing that they're not comfortable with is, is adapting to different situations of, um, you take, you take a, a driver and then you tell them to break here, turn here, apex here, go to power here. And that's always like step one. Um, where the car is going to change and the track's going to change. And you're never doing that for an entire 24 hour race. And I think what he does really well is he can adapt to, he can take that next step where I feel like a lot of new or gentleman drivers can't take that next step of, of adapting to what the car or the track needs and, uh, and really makes himself uh, a very valuable, a valuable, not only bronze driver, but even almost a silver driver. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, it does strike me. It's it's often struck me that in the wider sport, and actually, you know, and, and it's picked up listeners among some of the fan base as well. Uh, gentlemen drivers as a whole are maybe rather undervalued in terms of what they bring to the sport with the resource and with their passion. Mm. Looking at just your Le Mans record, you've raced with three of the absolute best. Uh, you've raced with Ben. 
You've raced with Julian Canal in your very first appearance uh, at Le Mans in 2013. Julian, a three times winner uh, in class at Le Mans. And also with David Heimar Hansen, who's coming back this year uh, for another crack at sports car racing. Another man who's won uh, at Le Mans. Um, what do you think? Your, your family team, you know, your dad's team uh, runs not just the full pro efforts, but also some pro-am uh, am efforts in, in one make racing. These guys really matter, don't they? Yeah, I think as we touched on before, it's it's such sports car racing is so cyclical, and I think gentlemen drivers are the are the single most important thing to sports car racing. Sadly, I think manufacturers are cool and they make it really exciting and special at times, but the thing that makes it go is is gentlemen drivers, and we I think that passion leaks over to everybody else, and and it it, it just fills the paddock with you know. The idea of that you can you know, make your living somewhere else and then and then come and perform uh, at the highest levels of motorsports, uh, whether it's going to Le Mans, winning or or racing, you know, full time in the states, yeah. it, it's it's an amazing thing. And yeah, I think getting to drive with the different guys, all three are very different. Yeah. Obviously, uh, Canal is, was a very competitive in karting as a young young kid and and grew up. Uh, on the business side of his dad uh, in Europe, and and then DHH and and Ben, um, full time businessmen. Yeah, uh, dude, I think both of them are very different. I think it's funny with DHH. He was he was as intense and as focused <laughs> on car setup and the details. Like I think that was the thing with him that I was most impressed with was the details. And I think with these guys, you can see what makes them good in business as well. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And yeah, it was just really cool. Like he was obsessed with ride height. He's like, the car's not, the car's not bottoming on full fuel. And it's like, you don't expect to be getting these sorts, this level of energy and uh, you know, level of detail, especially on the setup side. Uh, but he was able to contribute on on all aspects, which is I'm, cool. I'm, I'm smiling at the other end uh, uh, of, of this this this, uh, this call because I'm looking forward to. DHH being back and I recognize every single word of what you said about his approach to <laughs> racing super serious but just loved it loved it loved it fell out yeah. of love I think a bit with it uh, a couple of years ago and it's great to see him coming back and we'll welcome him back into the ELMS paddock uh, with real relish this year I think he's going to have something to bring to that I'm going to move across mm -hmm. to a couple of the questions directed at you could solve there's a guy now you might it's a guy I sort of know. The, uh, I, I, I he used to, used to be in him's Oliver Gavin. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a name that rings a bell. I can't think why. Um, but you, you, I, I, do you know this guy? Uh, I've heard of him a few times. You know yeah, well, that's uh, that's uh, yeah. Uh, you know, these has been. I don't know. Uh, he says Ricky Taylor is quite the mas master on the big green egg. First of all, you might want to explain to uh, to listeners what the big green egg is. I will admit I had to look it up. <laughs> so what well, is the big green egg? Yeah, I think, first of all, I think Ollie is one of those guys that we miss as well. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I miss, miss, miss having him around the paddock as well. He was such a, you know, a legend of our sport. And, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just back having had two weeks in the uh, in the United Arab Emirates with him commentating on the Asia Le Mans series. And he is enormous fun. 
Um, he's a great audience for the very worst of my jokes. Uh, something <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be probably twitching uh, around for the next couple of weeks. But you're entirely right. What, a, what an ambassador for the sport he, he is and remains. And it's going to be good to still have him around in the paddocks of the world. But uh, So the big green egg is not an egg, is it? It, it, it kind of looks like an egg. So the big green egg is a, it's a, it's a ceramic grill, if you will. Um, so you can cook, so you can bake in it, you can grill on it, you can smoke things on it. Um, so, you know, whether, whether you're an American sort of barbecue guy, which you like smoked brisket or ribs or whatever it is, you can do that on there. Sort of, you can go to a very low temperature and and use the smoke to cook things you can do smoked salmon um and then you can put this thing in it called the uh it's like a deflector it deflects the heat you can make pizza you should be doing uh, you should be doing qvc mate. <laughs> <I know. laughs> you well, should be doing infomercials on this you're selling it <laughs> it's funny they're they're actually humongous racing fans the guy who oh, really does the the marketing for the company uh, Rob D'Amico used to have a racing radio show in, in the States. And then the owner, Artie, used to be the owner of Road Atlanta. So, <laughs> oh, Well, here you go. I think we'll, we'll put this in before I ask the second part of the question, which is not just brought to you this week by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com, but also by the makers of the Big Green Egg. You can deliver <laughs> one of those to Marshall Pruitt in, the, uh, uh, in his, his home on the west coast of the States. The question, of course, Molly Gavin, and I think there's probably an ulterior motive here. I think he's looking for an invite round uh, for one of your non-racing Saturdays. Is What's the favourite recipe? And there's an addition question put in by a guy that you and I both know very well, Paul Market, who says, ask him about steak and meat nights. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, Paul, Paul's been over for a few uh, steak nights um, at the house and basically basically, it is exactly what it is. We just gather around and eat the essentials. It's just steak and meat. <laughs> and this past time we made bread, which was extra. So. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that would have a vegan running for cover. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's exactly what it is. We, we just will have like a little taste. We just, there's no plates. It's just gather around and toothpicks and slice meat on the, on the cutting board and just stand around and, you know, have a good time and, and eat steak. <laughs> If you don't mind me saying so, it sounds a little bit like literally Neanderthal. <laughs> we, at least we use toothpicks. We don't use our Fair hands. enough. <laughs> Fair enough. I think that, that it strikes me that's the kind of thing that uh, where Ollie Gavin can have a really good time. You know, anything that's not remotely civilized, it's, you know, it's his sort of way. You know, the way he turns up, he's fairly slovenly in his appearance, uh, never really well, well presented. And I'm sure a bit of barbecue sauce down the suit, it, it's not going to bother him <laughs> in any way, shape or form. So basically, <laughs> the favorite Met recipe, just to be clear here, is meat, uh, some more meats, a side dish of meats and for, 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 for sweet afterwards, for dessert, some more meat. I, I think you'd be, you'd be safe with that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny that, you, that Ollie asks this question with the steak night follow-up because Ollie has the funniest story about going with uh, with Tommy Milner on on a uh, man's weekend in right. Virginia, and he tells this story like he's got to tell you the story about <laughs> about uh, eating steak with their hands. 
Right, we'll get we'll we'll get him back on. Um, yeah. So you're warned, Mr. Gavin, you'll be coming back on and doing another guest spot on this one. Tommy Milner and eating steak steak with your hands. It's yeah. Mm. Is it? I'm just 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 so that we can be clear here and move on in a civilized fashion. We are talking a steak each and not one steak between them. Yeah, I think that That's was the right. rule with 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 Tommy. Was everybody brought their own steak for that one? <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Right, let's move on a bit. Let's, uh, we've got a last IMSA question here from Zach Dean. Um, he says he want, been wanted to ask this in Daytona. Uh, what do I need to do to get into sports cars? Uh, well, depends on what you mean by get into as a driver. You've got to have an awful lot of money uh, and or extreme talents. Uh, if you mean um, to go and watch trackside, literally just turn up to your local race um, and pick a car or three and watch it. Listen to something like the Weekend Sports Cars. Keep asking questions, and we're going to get on to the question you've asked. But there are no bad questions. We'll come to one or two that could be considered bad questions when we finish up with, with Ricky uh, very shortly. But uh, there are no bad questions if what you're looking for is information. What this show is all about, what the internet should be all about, is helping people to access a passion, a sport. And, you know, my view on these things is if someone gives you a, yeah, how can I put this, an unsavoury answer to a perfectly natural question, move on and, and pick someone who's going to give you a better answer. So Zach says, um, he knows absolutely nothing. I don't believe that, Zach. Uh, let's start with what makes a prototype a prototype. That's a really good question. Let's start with that bit. He asks also about GTD. Do manufacturers need to make road cars with the same and similar specs? Yes and no, uh, particularly with GTD, they need to, within the first two years of what's called homologation, which is the official approval to race those cars, to have sold 20. So when Corvette come to market their new uh, Z06 uh, C8, they will need to sell 20 of those cars uh, within the first two years of the car getting into competition. And yes, the uh, cars need to be based on an existing road car with an engine based on uh, a product that is in the product range of that manufacturer. Okay. Uh, so as a, for instance, the Acura NSX, um, there are massive similarities with between the road car and the race car, but because the racing regulations don't permit hybrid and the NSX does have a hybrid in road car, it doesn't have it in the race car. Neither can you have four wheel drive. There's all sorts of things like that. But the answer is, yes, you are looking at the racing version of the kind of road car that most of us, if we won the lottery, would be going down shopping for. Prototypes, though, Ricky, that's a good question, because we are in an era, aren't we, where with DPI, with LMDH, with LMP2, with LMP3, they're less prototypical. The original idea, of course, and back in your dad's day, uh, would have been that these were literally rolling test beds. That's why they were prototypes. You were testing and proving new technology. Whereas now, probably, would it be fair to say that they're less prototypical? They are racing sports cars. That's what they are. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I've never thought of it in that in that way that that we are just a, a, its own its own beast, sort of. I think even. Um, even with our Air X05, our, our current Acura, um, it is based on a road car engine right now. Yep. It, it probably won't be for the LMDH era, but um, it's very old engine. And <laughs> they've just they've made this V6 twin turbo into a monster. That's that's you know I think the first time they raced it was oh 
eight or wow. nine, and and the, and they've you know been evolving it since then. So um, I think they do. I think there are some things that are probably still they still can learn from. I think with the electrification and, and things, I think there's definitely some involvement. Although it's going to be more of a spec on the LMDH, um, but I think they, they they're still learning, and I think. Where you might not be learning on the car side, the way that I love that people use racing is training people and training, uh, training you know engineers to to work in a stressful environment and to take that back to take that back to the road car side where That's things might happen point. a bit slower. They've right. I mean, you know, even in the days when we were talking here about cutting edge technology, and a good example of this one I'll give you is that. Uh, I remember when Porsche came to LMP1, in a single year, they managed to double the amount of energy they could store in the battery of the battery hybrid for a a battery of the same weight in a single year. I remember talking to one of the design engineers uh, at Porsche and saying that, look, you know, had they not had the pressure that competition brought with it, that would have been something that would have been multiple years in a lab situation and with road car testing whereas with competition because there's that white heat and they're up against really solid opposition at that stage toyota and audi it it gave them something that pushed that process forward toyota famously throughout their entire lmp1 program was funded not by the marketing side of toyota but by the r&d side it was about learning more about that electrification and we ended up with the monster that was the TSO 50, uh, for my money, the fastest sports car there has ever been. Um, you know, in the uh, you know uh, with uh, Porsche leaving and Audi leaving, Toyota last man standing in the hybrid side of things, and now we enter this new era. And it is uh, that's a great point about the people side of things because that does mean that the the engineers, the designers that have been involved in squeezing the last percentage points of performance. Uh, out of those cars then get filtered back into the road car side of things i'll be blunt that's the first time anybody said that to me i think that's a great point yeah and and i think i think you hear it both ways um and it's i feel like it's such a missed opportunity if you don't use your people it's so easy for that information just to get stuck in in motorsports and i think we oftentimes we're we're taking other people's inventions and, and refining them um but I think once once you do, you know, get that knowledge, it's uh, it would be it would be a waste to just keep it in in our in our game that we play here on on the weekends, and not to not to use it for for more good on the road car side. Excellent stuff. Uh, I'm going to move on and do a couple of questions in the Wekaslam's Elms Aco. If you're not familiar with that, that is the uh, they're the initials of the major series for the ACO, and this is where our listeners get to chuck questions in what is normally my bailiwick. Um, they're all series, uh, the Asian Le Mans series, the European Le Mans series, the WEC, where I form part of the TV commentary team. And also um, generally in, well, I'm always uh, in attendance of those races. We'll start with Gustavo Bamba and Gustavo says, we all know 2022 would be a transition year in endurance racing. He said, the absence of Peugeot will not have a big impact, but next, next year the car must deliver. Is the delay related with reliability or the aero concept? Will they need the help of rear wing? Well, just to be clear, I don't think there's any question at the moment that Peugeot are aiming to be present 
during this season, my guess would be that we are going to see them at Monza, um, which is the summer race post Le Mans. The issue for Peugeot is simple. Um, the out the, the kind of the outturn of it is more complicated. The issue is homologation with the the rules for hypercar. And to be clear here, hypercar is the coverall expression in the WEC for both the LMH cars, the Le Mans hypercars, and the LMDH cars. And exactly the same applies in IMSA, but for hypercar read GTP. So for GTP, Ricky's, and I'm sure it will be next year, uh, Acura LMDH could be racing alongside anybody that feels a, uh, a, a, an eligible LMH in the same class. The class is called GTP. The cars within it are balanced to the same kind of performance levels. So with Peugeot, it's about homologation. Part of the the cleverness, if you like, of this, this new rule set, the reason why we've got, I think, as much hope as we have that not just at 23 and 24 are going to be great, but that actually beyond that, uh, the stands likely to be some really good news is that the homologation period for these cars is longer than it otherwise would be. So that will establish the baseline performance for those cars. They will be allowed to make some amendments to them. We'll see some amendments from Toyota. We've already seen the visual, some of the visual ones on the Toyota in testing. Uh, but what Peugeot want to do is to bring the most reliable car to the track when they first decide to bring it forward. And also the car that is that they're confident is within the performance window where balance of performance will then be applied. And they've made the determination that they think it's going to be too tight, not for Le Mans, but for Spa. Why Spa? Because the ACO correctly have made it clear they do not want to see a brand new car and a brand new concept uh, for a car uh, racing for the first time at Le Mans, where very different forces apply. Uh, where it's a very different, completely unique racetrack. So what they've made it clear is that the car would have to race earlier. That means you would have to lock in that homologation for four, five years uh, before the car races in May, not June, uh, and that places further restrictions. So for what it's worth, uh, if what you're looking for is that car uh, to be with us for a long time, it's a very sensible move from Peugeot to say, Let's get it right before we bring it to the party, because well, the last thing you want is them bringing it to the party, it not being correct, and then finding themselves hamstrung for following seasons, and then potentially being not competitive, and potentially it being a shorter program. So in terms of what we all want, well, two things we all want. We want to see the car. We want to see it race. Of course we do. But we want to see it race next year, and the year after, and the year after that. And with that in mind, that's why it's the correct decision and a smart decision to go through that program and be ready. Because whilst this year their opposition is the Alpine and it is the Glickenhaus and it absolutely is the Toyota, next year it's what we've said time and time again is when the cavalry arrive. And that's when the trucks roll up to the preseason testing and Porsche and Audi and Acura and Cadillac and Ferrari. And BMW all on load at the big races, and they better be ready for that. That's why that's around. Uh, moving forward, uh, Nick Dvitniak says, and this is one I'll, I'll chuck your way 
in one regard, because you've worked with uh, the man, but also to ask about the role that he fulfills. Nick says, what kind of impact does the potential of losing Eduardo as the ACO race director have on the global sports car world? Now, to put this into context, Eduardo Freitas, uh, the race director for WC, ELMS, Asia Le Mans series, um, has uh, been called up for service, if you like, in the aftermath of um, Abu Dhabi Gate uh, last year. Uh, will be one of two new race directors for the Le Mans 24 Hours. Uh, that one, sorry, excuse me, for Formula One. And will also serve duty in, when he's not at, on race weekends with them in the uh, the virtual race control, which I believe is going to be in Geneva most weekends uh, when we've got Formula One. Uh, there has been no announcement yet as to what that means in terms of Eduardo's uh, duties in sports car racing. Um, I am aware of part of the answer to that question, and I'm going to completely respect confidences in not revealing that here. Uh, but there's news to come. Not all of it bad news. I will tell you that right now. Um, from the WC's point of view, uh, I can tell you that he's extremely well respected, uh, particularly for his level of... <sighs> Consistency, I think, is the word uh, I'm looking for there. Well, actually, I mean, I, I don't know whether or not you've actually ever had that, uh, you know, uh, Ricky Taylor to race control in the WC or Le Mans. Uh, <laughs> have, you, have you ever gone head to head with Eduardo? Uh, I have been caught those office once. <laughs> you have? Okay. Yeah. Well, tell us why. Go on. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. I think he's extremely consistent. Um, so it was in Fuji. Um, I did a. A personal best sector with a yellow. Oh dear! Under yellow, and so I saw the car off in the gravel, and this is, and this is I I didn't want to like bring it up in front of him, but I saw the car there, so I was like, okay, I can push on clear, but and that's how it is in the states. Okay, um, if Fair you enough. pass the incident and you don't see a green following, you're okay to go. And that's not the rule there. Um, so um, they had data and my personal, my all my sectors, and I was extremely impressed with the the process. Um, yeah, it's just it's just different. I think it's extremely difficult to write a rule book that is black and white. And yeah. I think at times it can be frustrating, black and white. But um, I think that's the way the rules you know have to be. I mean, ask the I'd ask the question. I mean, first and foremost, there's, there is that difficulty. I think people underestimate it of the nuances, the tiny little details between, even if we're just talking about WC and IMSA, that can make such a massive difference, not just the way that you operate, but also to the way the race itself operates. And the, but the question I want to chuck your way is just how much of an impact the the known approach and personality. Um, of a race director, just what impact can that have on the race meeting as a whole and the atmosphere within the paddock? It's a great question. Um, I, and I think it's so clear um, when you go there and I'll give you two, I'll give you an example from either side um, where I love racing on both, both sides. I think, I think IMSA allows a lot of leeway in terms of how hard you can race and things like that, where WEC is very strict and you do something wrong, you're going to get a penalty. So at the every driver's meeting at Le Mans, he mentions the pit exit line. If you touch the wall, 
if you touch the line, the line is a wall. If you touch the line, I expect you to pit because your car is probably broken. And so like, that's how strict he is. If you touch the line, he's treating it as if it's a wall and he's gonna make you come in to make sure your car is not broken. Yeah. Um, so it's completely black and white. Whereas on the IMSA side, I think uh, an example that we always, or we, we kind of often talk about is the pit lane rule, um, where you can race side by side down pit lane unless the car on the, in the fast lane needs to get to their pit box, in, w- in which case you can't interfere with that, then you'll get a penalty. But if there's no, um, no overlap and they can get in their box, you're fine. Where I feel like that, there's an inherent gray area there, but it leads to some really exciting racing and, and people trying to make moves on pit entry where that would be completely, you know, banished otherwise. <laughs> It's it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's I mean the the one that's come forward in conversation most recently about Eduardo is his attitude, his outlook on track limits. Where I know he's got another line that he delivers in most uh, drivers' briefings. I've been in a few of them um, where he talks about you know getting over the line and keeping off his garden, as he calls it. <laughs> that, you know your side of the track is the great bits, the other side is my garden. Keep out of my garden. Uh, but again, it is that consistency and. Um, Good luck to Eduardo. It's a bear pit, Formula One, particularly at the moment with the massive media attention that was already there and increasingly so at the moment with, you know, massive worldwide attention. Uh, we'll wait and see exactly where we get to profit from his uh, his uh, presence again in race control. And I'm sure that our good friend from Portugal uh, will continue to be as big a fan, a bigger supporter of sports car racing as he's been since we started in 2012. And uh, it's been such a privilege uh, to get the opportunity to take his mind privately, as well as in, on occasion on the record, um, you know, during that uh, that decade at the tiller of just about every single um, major sports car race that the ACO have run. I, I think he's missed one since 2012 in any series that the ACO ran. And that was the, uh, the, he did the Cota race um, for, uh, for WEC when that replaced into Lagos. And that then clashed with the Asia Le Mans series where we had his very good friend, longtime colleague, Rui uh, Marquez, another Portuguese race director, another excellent uh, guy in race control. So a look at a couple more here. Uh, Daniel Summersgill says, and Daniel, uh, Ricky, if you're not, uh, if you, you weren't aware, is is the uh, both listener and helper for the week in sports cars that does put together the list of questions which you've got in front of you at the moment. So thanks again, Daniel, for that. He says, does the ACO SRO need to try to ensure the Asian Mon series returns to a more normal calendar in terms of circuits and dates for next season? Is there a danger of the Asian Mon series becoming a winter ELMS if it only stays in the Middle East? There's a few Asian teams, but mostly European. Um, I think you're right. It absolutely does need to return. What I am told they're aiming for in 2022-23, when indeed SRO do take over some of the responsibility for the running and promotion of the Asian Le Mans series, um, is I expect that we're going to see two races pre-Christmas um, in the Gulf region. Not clear exactly where they're going to be yet. Uh, and post-Christmas, we are hoping we're going to be back to a couple of races in Southeast Asia. And again, it wouldn't be right at the moment to say what I'm hearing they will be. But I think we'll be going back to a couple of familiar venues. It's worth mentioning at this point um, just how 
difficult it is for teams and drivers in uh, Southeast Asia still to this this day. It is getting better, but it's been a very slow burn. And at Daytona, I actually wrote up this interview just this week. Uh, I sat down with Alex Imperatori, uh, who was one of the drivers for the KCMG GTD Pro team. And he was telling me a few tales about just how tough it is at the moment. Alex lives with his young family in Shanghai, in China. And uh, the day we sat down, which I think was the day before the race, uh, he'd just been told that his flight home was cancelled. Okay, so his flight home to Shanghai was cancelled. So I'm going to ask you, Ricky Taylor, you know, in the land where there is plenty of air travel. So Alex Imperatori would be leaving from, uh, I think, either Switzerland or Germany to go back to Shanghai. His flight was cancelled home. When do you think they offered him a flight home? This is so. This would be last week of January, correct? Uh, yes, it would be. Now, so when do you think they offered him a flight home? Oh my gosh, I've never, I've, I've never been through that, but I would hope the next day at least. <laughs> well, the the answer and uh, brace yourself is May. Oh yeah, yeah, wow. Okay, so uh, and there's there's lots of reasons behind all of that, but it falls down to. In China at the moment, with the Omicron uh, variant of the virus producing many more positive uh, COVID cases, albeit not some of the people, are, not the numbers of people who are seriously ill, the law in China means that you are, um, that if a flight arrives and a number of people are, are tested positive on that flight, that flight, let's say for the sake of arguing a Swiss air flight, is not then permitted to operate for a set number of days, weeks, or months, depending on the number of people who've tested positive on the flight. And what that's meant through the Omicron time is there are very few international flights into China, and you're only permitted to to enter China on a flight that has left your home state. So in the case of Alex, he has dual nationality, so he's lucky enough to be able to go from either uh, Germany or Switzerland, but there are just simply no flights. And that's meant that uh, Alex, during the period of time when he was doing the GT programme in Europe with KCMG, has had successively five, six and seven months away from his family uh, between races. That's how tough it is. There is literally no cross-border racing across the Asian continent whatsoever uh, outside of the Gulf. Um, so there is nothing in terms of Southeast Asia. You've got national championships in Thailand, in Japan, of course, in China, but there is no cross-border racing at the moment. And we await, you know, with bated breath that to come back because we do want to go back there because you do get one hell of a welcome and it's great to do that. But that's why, yes, that's what they're aiming for, Daniel. I hope we're able to get that done. Things are moving in the correct direction. The controls are coming down. Uh, the countries are beginning to open up. And yes, I'm as thirsty as everybody else is to get back to what we had as normality. But it does remind us, doesn't it, of just how privileged we are with the freedoms that we've had, uh, that it's taken a pandemic to remind us of just what a spanner can be thrown in the works. Moving forward, let's get back to a couple of questions for you, good self, Ricky. And what have we got here? Uh, this is from Andrew Minot. And uh, he says, is it more fun to race with or against Jordan? If it's more fun to race against Jordan, why is he no fun as a teammate? <laughs> um, I, I actually really did not enjoy racing against Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, and I love I love racing with him. I think against him, he's he's good, which is one thing that that stinks is because he's so good. He's I'm just going to write. I'm just going to write that down now. Jordan Taylor is quite good in a race car. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and like driving with Jordan was amazing. I think you've known that you've been around sports car racing for so long that I'm sure you have a really good gauge on the inter-team battles and oh, yeah. how, how drivers can a, a, a great team is normally made of two people that work really well together that can trust each other and you know share information and not not care who's who's faster um but always pushing each other and so Jordan and I inherently had that just because we're brothers and we both know that if we you know you know one of us doesn't have a good year that's it's our brother's livelihood that could be at stake yeah. so uh, we, we pushed each other. We pushed each other hard, and that was that was fun. And then racing against each other, it was um, it was tough. It was you know he's, he's a really good competitor, and um, and obviously driving for good teams, it was it was really tough. It was he was he was a hard one to beat. I can add a couple of bits and pieces in here. I mean, first things first. Do people confuse the two of you? <laughs> all, all the time, all the time. <laughs> I think even my dad will. <laughs> That's it's gotta be said. That that bit I recognise. I'm one of seven children. I'm I'm one of two boys. There's five girls in in my family. And famously, yeah, my <laughs> mum and dad uh, would quite often work their way through the entire list of names before they got to the right one. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid in my advancing years I do much the same, even though I've just got the, the, the two kids. I, I I quite often mix up my daughter and my wife's name when I'm searching <laughs> for the right answer. But uh, <laughs> I, I guess the other question is after a joint win or in particular a a day when one of the two of you has had a big win and the other one hasn't what's family dinner like uh i think that's the hard part right is is in motorsports your your win percentage is so low it's it's and the the likelihood of especially when we were on three different teams jordan at corvette wtr off on and doing prototypes and then me at penske that was that was the worst situation because you know one of the three weren't going to be happy. Likely two of the three weren't going to be happy. Um, and and now that we're, we're consolidated to two, um, the odds are a bit more in our favor. But when we were all together, it was, you know, win and lose as a family. Obviously, the, the losses are sort of, I'm not going to say expected, but it's more normal. But the wins were, were especially, especially um, unique and it's, it was definitely a, a cool experience to get to share share a Rolex 24 win with my dad and my brother and and Max Angelelli, who is also part of the family. Um, yeah, that I, th- I think that I would never trade for anything, having that opportunity to, to win together. Fantastic. Now, here's one from Zach Anderson, and I'm going to let you answer this one. Uh, <laughs> Zach's question is, is it more fun doing this podcast or with Dale Jr., what's the weirdest thing a sponsor's asked you to do? Let's answer the first part of the first, <laughs> because I think he's fallen into that trap, hasn't he? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a perfect example. Um, and it I, wasn't you, was it? <laughs> what's funny is I feel like, depending on who's having the better year, um, it'll. It, when, I, when I was first in prototypes and Jordan hadn't quite broken into the GT ranks yet, um, everybody referred to Jordan as Ricky's brother. But very quickly after Jordan sort of made for a, na- a name for himself very early, I be- I had to accept that I was now Jordan's brother, 
And uh, at first we were Wayne's kids and now I'm Jordan's brother, but it's gotten even worse. I think since Rodney Sandstorm came about, now I'm, I'm Rodney Sandstorm's neighbor's brother. So. <laughs> well, you've seen, I'm sure, Andrew Baxter's question and there's an accompanying picture that actually comes with this one. So do have a look at uh, uh, the hashtag Twisk um, on uh, at Baxter, B-A-K-K-S-T-E-R. It's a question for Ricky. Who wore it better, Ronnie Sandstrom or, or Kaz Grala? And the, yeah, well, you can answer that question. Uh, they're, they're both obviously fashion icons. Uh, absolutely. It's it's really great to see the the throwback of the, Bill, the, um, of the Jeff Gordon jacket still hanging on. And I think I think whoever's got it on has has the confidence and it's, it, it's it's a good that's look. a great word. Confidence. That's a great <laughs> word. It's a damning word. <laughs> so let's finish it up with uh, before we get into a couple more kind of questions. Zach's a second part. What's the weirdest thing a sponsor's asked you to do? Huh. That's almost like that part. Um, oh, so I went to UCF, uh, the University of Central Florida, for 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 university for college. Yeah. And um, SunTrust was the sponsor. It's a bank here, and so they did a promotion with with UCF since they were the they were the official bank. And the weirdest thing we had to do was a tricycle race at the halftime of a of a basketball game, a college basketball game. And uh, it's the film. It, it was. Uh, thankfully, I don't think there is. So. <laughs> so if you're listening and you've got film of the tricycle, <laughs> it, maybe it's not worth googling just in case. But <laughs> <laughs> right, who won the tricycle race? Yeah, and then and then what was actually quite cool about that was we we took the race or Suntrust took the race car and uh, drove drove a one of the the winning student around the campus in the race car which is pretty cool it was police escort and everything that was pretty fun i do like i do like it when we can actually get proper race cars on public roads i know one of the stories we ran on daily sports car in the last week or so which is the uh it is the 30th anniversary uh this year of the of sro who run of course gt racing around the world and the spa 24 hours will be supported this season with a 30 years of gt racing uh, event race on the uh, support card for the Spa 24 Hours, and that means that cars from the very start of SROs racing in '94, all the way through the GT1 days, and all the way through to the last iteration of GT3, which I think up to about 2009. Not only will those cars race, but they will also take part in an event I don't know you've ever seen, but it's on the Wednesday of Spa 24 weekend, the race cars parade along the roads to spa so spa if you're driving in a road car it's about 20 minutes um and this means that we're not just going to see the the current gt3 race cars go but also gt1 gt2 gt3 cars uh, for the last 30 years uh, on the streets of belgium between francochamp where spa francochamp is situated and the town of spa and famous casino square there which is going to be a great thing to see awesome. great stuff right i'm going to clear up a couple of uh, more wc questions and we're going to get to the final question that's directed to you from a special guest questioner um so a couple of quick ones uh clement rosan says what happened to greaves motorsport of course greaves were uh, stalwarts of the LMP2 grid for many years. Greaves Motorsports are still represented in most of the, certainly European paddocks. I'm not sure about IMSA. 
but they uh, decided to leave behind their uh, motorsport team days and got into uh, bespoke motorsport engineering. So if you've watched a WC race in the last decade, I'd suggest you've seen Grease Motorsports products because just about every fueling rig in the WC paddock is now made by Greaves 3D Engineering, which is the offshoot of Greaves uh, Motorsport. And there's lots of other bits and pieces linked in with uh, race cars that they produce now at their uh, their facility. So Greaves is still with us. Still see Jacob Greaves very often. I've not seen his dad um, for a little wee while, but still see Jacob in the pit lane. And they still do from time to time um, help out with teams. You'll see some of the Greaves guys uh, in the garages uh, once in a while. Uh, Jens Jensen, a uh, good friend of mine from the LMS and WC press room, uh, Danish young Danish journalist, uh, says, what's the most bonkers, mind-blowing penalty you've seen in a sports car paddock? After two weeks of, I'm not going to, uh, uh, because frankly, the one he's, he's quoting here is probably the most mind-bending one. We did have quite the week in the UAE on this front. Uh, we had one Ricky, which was it was a twenty-eight minute stop and go. <laughs> uh, that was that was I think I'm right. Um, it was a drive time violation of a car that was not having the best of times. I think they got to the stage where they didn't care, and one of the two drivers was fifty-five minutes over on his maximum drive time in a four-hour race. Oh, that was pretty good. But the one that I know Jens is talking about here, and I will talk about it, is we had a red flag um, uh, in one of the Abu Dhabi races, and cars were formed up on the pit straight. And later on that evening, some penalties emerged, and they were pretty stringent. So uh, it was either two or three 20,000 euro fines levied against drivers. And that was because, uh, despite the fact that drivers, I am told, were told by race control there was time enough for them to go and get a comfort break, that two or three of them chose to go over the armco and relieve themselves on the other side of the armco. Now, unfortunately for them, um, in sight of where they chose to do that was not just a marshal, but a female marshal. Uh, and to say the least... That is a very serious offence indeed in the UAE. They are very lucky that that's a fine and that we're not actually, um, you know, writing them letters in a, how can I put this, rather warm prison compound somewhere outside Abu Dhabi. So that's probably the most bonkers thing uh, that I've seen. Anything you can uh, come to? Uh, Other than obviously the outrageous um, reason for you going for a meeting without coffee and biscuits with Eduardo. What's the (laughs) most outrageous thing you've seen in IMSA paddock? Um, I, nothing that beats that, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it would be difficult, yes. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I can't think of one off, off the top of my head. But that one is a that's that's, that's a corker, a- isn't it? That is a corker. Uh, let's go to the last one we've got for you before we wrap up with the last couple. And this one comes from I'm not quite how sure sure how I pronounce this name, but I'll try. Flip Flippy, Albert Albert Quer Albert Kirky. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this guy, um, and I don't think it's in any way a leading question from the multiple title winning Portuguese superstar. Uh, which teammate are you cheering in the WC? Specifically, if there's a situation of wheel to wheel in the final laps for the win, it's 
we should explain this, shouldn't we, for people that follow him so and don't follow WC, that both of your teammates this year are in different cars than the WC. Yeah, it's um, between uh, Will Stevens driving for Jota and, and Philippe driving for United. Um, so it's obviously Will. You're obviously cheering for Will. Obviously. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it, has been, it has been the funniest debriefs because both of them will like, because we all learn everywhere we go, but both of them will will share bits of knowledge that they've learned in other teams, but they they kind of want to tell the engineer without the other one finding out. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, dear me! That, 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 it has been so cool. Um, but yeah, I think I think uh, after after Sebring, I don't see we don't see Will until Watkins Glen. So okay. Um, I think it would be hard to live with to live with Philippe after after that after if, if Will beats him in Sebring, it would be hard to hard to go on. I'd say Sebring is going to be big fun for a whole number of reasons. We're going to finish it up, and thanks for that. With a couple here, uh, Clement Rosanna asks: Are there any concrete plans from Aston Martin to restart their LMH program, or is the recent presentation of the Valkyrie uh, just a way to get the press talking, sell track day cars? Hashtag, he says, me personally thinks it would be a great addition to the grid. It looks fantastic. There have clearly been some statements from Lauren Stroll um, about the aspiration of Aston Martin to come back with the Valkyrie in LMH form. Am I aware of any concrete plans? No, is the straight answer. I would find it very surprising indeed if there was a program that would bring that car in competitive trim for 2023, which is what has been mentioned uh, in those conversations. So is there a plan? Is it a little bit of mining for, um, for for good coverage? I Honestly, I've not had five minutes to kind of uh, find out. And truth be told, of the people that I would pick the phone up to at Aston Martin, most of them don't work there anymore. And the ones that still do work there uh, are unlikely to give me a straight answer to that question. I hope we see Aston Martin. That That is one of the big missing pieces in the jigsaw moving forward. They've been such fantastic supporters of sports car and GT racing throughout almost my entire time reporting on it. It'll be very sad if we don't see them with a plan to come back in the top class, but the Valkyrie, um, I think the reality is if they're going to come, I'd rather they did it when they're ready rather than against a false deadline of just being there for 2023. Because what we don't want to see in exactly the same vein as we said with the Peugeot a little earlier is that the car comes and is simply not ready and fit for purpose. It is not easy to detune a thousand horsepower plus road car slash track day car um, to run at something close to 650 uh, in restricted form in a balanced performance formula. That's not going to be the work of a moment and they're running out of time. It's going to be very expensive to do it. I hope there's a program but I'm surprised if there is one that we've heard uh, only from one single source that that might be the case. Um, finishing off with a couple of general ones, and I'll, I'll answer these ones. I'm not going to ask Ricky to go into uh, anything about the the Ukrainian conflict. You know, does it affect the landscape of sports car racing? Ask Kevin Kemp. Ricky Zagata asks, will the reset the sanctions placed on Russian businesses? How will that affect the Russian teams moving forward? Sam Piper asks a more direct question. Where do the current shenanigans leave G-Drive? Um, the honest answer is we don't know. It's pretty clear that the 
political climate is moving towards isolation of Russia, uh, the politicians and their enablers in terms of the, the way in which this is managed. My thoughts uh, here are with two groups of people. It is everybody in Ukraine. It's a terrible, terrible situation to be in amongst our motorsport family. It's anybody that is about to be an unwitting victim of the, any change that comes their way uh, with the rule books and any sanctions that are placed on it. And I think there are going to be unwitting victims in that regard. Sad to say, I think we are going to see some impact on uh, some of the the individuals that uh, the questioners there are talking about and the teams. I'm not going to go into specifics. It would not be fair. Um, and I'll be checking in with the people I care about in the next few days to make sure they're doing OK through the mayhem that is going on at the moment uh, across Europe. And let's hope that their uh, livelihoods aren't directly affected by decisions which have been completely out of their control. So that's enough about that one for the moment. Uh, let's have a quick look at where we can finish it. Oscar C. Love says he's never been to a sporty car race. What's the most accessible venue? Um, if by that you mean accessible in the way that we we talk about it in the UK, uh, then the answer I think is Daytona International Speedway because that's where you know if you are not got full mobility, there's complete access to the stands there for anybody that's not got full mobility. If you're talking about just you know, arriving at a track, there's plenty of uh, facilities that are within uh, within uh, easy reach of major hubs. I'll ask you that one, actually, Ricky. Wh which are the easiest ones to get to if you're flying in? Oh, if you're flying in, um, since I, since you're the expert on Europe, I, I guess for the States, um, it's always really fun to go to any of the California races because it's pretty there. Um, but, but on the East Coast, uh, Road Atlanta is fantastic to to see um, to see you know I think the longer races are great because you can mosey around and and watch the different corners. But if you've never been to a sports car race, the cool thing about sports car races is that they are accessible. Just it's not a closed paddock; it's always an open paddock, and you can you know get in and see the cars and drivers and teams up close. Um, but for me, Road Atlanta is always always such a special one where you can see. You know, daytime driving, nighttime driving, uh, being in the pits and paddock and everything. Excellent. We're going to finish with one of our fun questions, and it comes from Andrew Backer. And Andrew says, McDonald's have launched their so-called menu hacks. He says they're really just thousand-calorie monstrosities that consumers make themselves by combining two to three other sandwiches. Sounds a bit like one of your meat nights here. <laughs> uh, but he says, if you do that in sports car terms, what two engine eight wheel monstrosities of nature would you create? Hashtag me personally. He'd like to see the Delta Nos Wing Speranti made of a Delta Wing and a Panels Esperanti GTR1 to really lean into the Batmobile theme. If, if well, through your career, you've had DP, uh, GT, now into DPI, which elements of the cars that you've driven Ricky, would you put into something you'd want on the drive? Um, of the things I've driven, um, I think... Uh, Engine I, noise I, of the Corvette DP, surely. Yeah, I think you put that that noise in, into the, into this current Acura with the downforce it has. But if I had to go outside of things I've driven, the favourite noise I I love is the is the 333. Oh, um, wow, yeah. So so for me, I could put that engine in anything and, and, and love it. <laughs> 333 engine to Corvette, maybe? Oh, perfect. Love it. 
there you go. That's the way to do it. We're going to let you go. Thank you so much for stepping in at short notice for this one. You've been great. Uh, and just to check, you are Ricky and not Jordan. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> you got it. That's fine. You're the guy without the loud jacket. That's fine. That would have um, been awkward by the end of the call. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks a million. Good luck at Sebring. I'll be seeing you there for sure um, with the fabulous Wentella Racing uh, Acura Konica Minolta car going for another win at the 12 hours of Sebring. It's been uh, a great start to the season in IMSA. We've got a start to the season coming with the FIWEC. Uh, I'm going to say on behalf of both of us, thanks to Ricky Taylor and uh, thanks to everybody that's contributed with the questions uh, this evening once again. And thanks again to Daniel Summerskill for putting those together. Thanks in advance to Marshall Pruitt for the production of this, which will get this on the web pretty soon after we've uh, we've wrapped this one up. For now, this has been the Week in Sports Cars with thanks to Cooper Tyres. With thanks to the Justice Brothers and to TorontoMotorsports.com, I've been Graham Goodwin, and we'll see you next week.